0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. I was just telling Terry Johnson he's in the spit zone. I can reach him from here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's open with the order of prayer. Thank you again, Father, for the opportunity for us to gather together to give you praise that you are so richly worthy of, and especially this Advent season, as we remember the reason that you sent Christ into the stream of history, the stream of time, uh, not to give us cozy, warm winter wishes, but to remind us of the cross. As we look into your word today, we ask you to speak to us. We ask you to inhabit both the hearer and the speaker and the powerful presence of your Holy Spirit. We ask you that all that is done here this day brings glory to you through Jesus, your son. For we pray in his name, amen. Amen. Well, as you know, chess is a board game of two players. Each player um, controls an army uh, with the objective of trying to either capture or put into checkmate the opponent's king. So The history of chess goes all the way back at least as far as the 7th century in India. The interesting thing to me about chess is it's a very abstract game of strategy. There's no hidden information and there's no element of chance. It's all about strategy. And the strategy of chess is a particular aspect of the game where each player is trying to set goals and determine what future moves they and their opponent are going to make. So they're making future moves plans for play. And they do this by evaluating the strategy, not only of themselves, but of their opponents. So they have to take into account the relative value of the pieces on the board and uh, the structure of the pawn, who's controlling each uh, square of the game, the particular position of the pieces. In his study, the the, the study is called The Expression of Aggression in the Game of War Using Chess as a Bloodless Model. The author, Anton Kreuter, says, uh, to better study aggression as it relates to the phenomena of war, one could look at the game of chess for insights into this form of universal human behavior. War is a contest between two advocates of different views A conflict of interest which cannot be resolved using peaceful means and usually results in a victory on one side and a defeat on the other with heavy casualties shared by both. Therefore war is a conflict. To wage war is to engage in a forceful attempt to overthrow the enemy and move in via takeover or surrender by the enemy. Chess is also a contest between two sides. The player has an opponent whom he wishes to destroy, put into checkmate, and against whose attacks he must defend. In the game of chess, the queen is the most valuable offensive piece because she can move in eight different directions. The queen is powerful, the queen is tricky, sometimes seductive, one attacks the queen only in... at a threat to their own own safety. You have to be very confident to, to attack the queen. In the book of Esther today, Esther is the queen, and she is a very dangerous foe, one not to be underestimated or trifled with. One trifles with her only by placing oneself into deadly peril. So in this chess match before us today, the queen goes on the offensive. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter seven, verse one, where we left off last week. Now you remember last week I showed an overhead, which was a chiasm. It shows the balance where you go A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A. So the, the whole book of Esther is written in Hebrew poetry with a chiasm. Uh, so that point one is a reflection of the end Point B is a reflection to the next to the end. Point C is so forth down to the middle. We're right at the middle of this chiasm. Thus far, um, the, the game has moved rather slowly. So the first two chapters of Esther took us several years to get through, not us, but took several years for it to happen. And since chapter three, everything's happening at pretty quick pace. Uh, all of the things which have taken place since chapter three happen on the same day. On this particular day, the king wakes up in the middle of the night and uh, he discovers that in the process of not being able to sleep, he discovers that a a plot had been uh, shown to him through Mordecai of someone who was tempted to assassinate him, but Mordecai had never been uh, awarded or recognized for uncovering this assassination plot. Right at that time, while the king's wondering what to do to reward Mordecai, Haman shows up because he also can't sleep. He desperately wants to figure out how he can get the king's permission to hang Mordecai. Uh, And then through a comedy of errors, where we were last week, Haman, in his attempts to um, have Mordecai executed, ends up honoring Mordecai, and he himself is the one who does it. He, he, he leads Mordecai around the, the square on the king's horse. He brings honor to, to Mordecai instead of, uh, instead of dishonor. He's, Haman is so disgraced at this prospect that he goes home. He's absolutely devastated. This is not how he planned his day to go. This has been a most unfortunate day. What was that book? Alexander's Terrible, Horrible, Most Unfortunate Day, something like that. That's been Haman. Haman's had a, had a very unfortunate day. But as soon as he gets home after this disgrace of having to honor the very same guy that he wants to execute, he goes home. He's about ready to unload on his wife and his friends, only he can't be there very long before the eunuchs from the king show up to whisk him away to the second banquet. Now, the narrator doesn't tell us what Haman is thinking at this point, but uh, he, he's, he must be thinking it's been a bad day, but it can't all be bad. You know, he's, he's so preoccupied with his own self that he's thinking as, as miserable as it's been, there's, there's gotta be a, a, a reversal to my, to my day. He's, he's so obsessed with his own pride. He's gotta be thinking, well, you know, at least what's happened has been bad this morning, this, today. But on the other hand, I was invited not once but twice to dine with the king and the queen. They must think highly of me. They must, they must be able to recognize my abilities. So he's, he's at least thinking that things are gonna go better for him for the rest of the day because he's been invited to dine with the royal couple. Now remember, Haman's kind of a rotten guy, but his primary motivation has not been uh, ethnic hatred, although he does hate the Jews. And his primary motivation has not been monetary gain, although he does want to gain more money. His primary motivation is that he wants to be admired by other people. He wants to, to be confirmed in his position of power. He wants other people to, to see that and admire him, which makes it particularly painful for him because here's this Jew, Mordecai, who absolutely refuses to bow down before him to admire his position and and his ability. So with all of his wealth and all of his family and all of his friends and all of his position, it's these little slights from this little Jew that really aggravates Haman. It's, it's, It's really messed up his life. Now, you notice every time that Haman is slighted because somebody fails to recognize his position or his ability, he's upset every time Haman is happy, it's because his ego is being stroked. People are saying what a good guy he is, what a powerful guy he is. He's always happy when his ego is being stroked, and that's what's happening right now. He's been invited back to the queen's banquet. He's the only one in all the kingdom outside the king himself who's been invited to this banquet, and now he's, he's feeling particularly good about his situation. He's, his, his, his ego has been wounded, but now it's being stroked, and so he's looking pretty positive about what's going to happen for the rest of the day. Curiously, the world has always been full of haymans. You know, people who are narcissistic, they, 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 they want to be recognized for their power. They want to be in control. They want people to show them respect. They'll do whatever they have to do to gain respect and control and to Um, eliminate anybody who won't show them the respect that they think they deserve. They're they're always manipulating for their own self-serving agenda. And if if someone tramples on that, they have absolute hate for that person and they're obsessed with getting rid of that person. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter seven. Chapter seven, verse one. Remember now, Haman's been whisked away to go to this banquet. Verse one, so the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what's your wish, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So the king and Haman arrive at this banquet. There's, uh, there's the dinner, and then there's drinks afterwards. And then once again, this is the third time now, the king asks Esther, what her request is. You know, she came into the king's uh, throne room uninvited. She risked her life. This request must be terribly important. She says, I'll tell you later. They have their first banquet. The king's curious, you know, what's, what's so important that you're going to risk your life for? And she uh, demurs it once again. She says, I'll tell you later when you come back to the second banquet. Something's troubling Esther. So the king on the one hand, is curious, you know, what's so important to Esther that she would take these chances. And on the other hand, he's, he's, uh, he's demonstrating that he's willing to grant her her request. So he's curious and also he realizes that something is troubling her. Haman, on the other hand, is totally clueless. He has no idea what's going on right now. He, he's, his pride has blinded him. He, he thinks Esther is his new ally. He thinks the king finally recognizes his ability and his importance. He's number two in the kingdom. He thinks he's got the king in his back pocket. And now Esther's invited him not to just one banquet, but now to a second banquet. He thinks Esther's also in his back pocket. He thinks that she also is recognizing his great abilities and his great achievement. He fails to see, however, Esther is his mortal enemy. Esther is not his friend. He doesn't know at this point, Esther is a Jew. The same people group that he has manipulated the king into passing an edict to have them educate, eradicated, educated, <laughs> sorry, I just thought, thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> at any rate, he doesn't know she's, she's a Jew, he feels safe in her presence. He feels like she loves him. Um, he's the only one besides the king that's been invited, and so he feels, he feels safe, he feels admired. He's letting his guard down. He doesn't realize she's playing the chessboard and he's been drawn in. He, she's working as a master of the board to, to place Haman in checkmate. He foolishly underestimates his opponent. Verse 3, the queen answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. See, now this time... Esther does not skirt the question. This time she comes right out. But notice that there's a subtle change in her language. When we were, uh, uh, where were we? It was chapter 5, verse 4, she speaks in the, in the third person. She said, if it please the king and uh, let the king. So she's speaking in third person. Now there's a subtle shift here because now, in this text, she's speaking in second person. She's moved a little bit closer to the king. She says, uh, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and she's drawing this strength of the relationship between herself and the king. It's no longer in the third person, it's in the second person, and she's identifying that way. And the next thing she says, she's pulled herself to the, closer to the king, she pulls her people closer to herself. She says, Let my life be granted to me for my wish, and my people for my request. Now she continues, for we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. So she's stating that she has been sold. Now, there's a very subtle but bravely serious indictment that she's implying here. The indictment is against someone who's taken upon themselves. To sell something that belongs to the king—only the king has the right to sell property or people within his kingdom—but she is implying that someone has stepped in and is trying to assert. What's the word I'm looking? Usurp. That's it. She's trying to usurp the the king's power by selling off part of the king's property. This is treason so she's implying that there is a traitor in your kingdom and of course the irony is this indictment falls on the very same day that the king has discovered that someone has revealed a treasonous uh, assassination attempt against him and so he's rewarding the guy who's who uh revealed uncovered this plot to him the indictment here is that there's there is an attempt against both the queen and the king in this place. So the plot is for herself and her people to be, and then she says, destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Those are the exact same words in the exact same order that Haman gave when he issued this indictment. She's using the same words, the same language from Haman's law. And nevertheless, what's happening here is that is that Esther is cunningly laying a trap for Haman. She, she, she's very clever and, and sly in the use of the, using the words of his own edict to imply that there's a threat against the queen and there's a traitorous act against the king. And then she fin- finishes off with this brilliant piece of rhetoric. She says, if we'd been sold merely as m- male and female slaves, I, I wouldn't have said anything because uh, it would not, no distress like that would justify upsetting the king. So she's implying that, that she's, she's sensitive to the king's needs. Um, if she would just been sold as a slave, she wouldn't bother the king with something as trivial like that. But this is really important. But yet on a, a deeper level here, she's, she's establishing a, another connection with Haman's edict, and it will become evident to the king only as these events play out because neither one of them are seeing how the game of chess is being manipulated on the board. She says, we have been sold to be destroyed. Now, let's look back at the edict itself. When Haman gives the edict, he, uh, he says, just uh, a minute, i got to find my notes. Um, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of, a, of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's law. So it's not to the king's profit to t- tolerate them. If it please the king, let them be destroyed." Curiously, the word destroyed is a homophone, it means it, it's, it's a different word. It means something different, but it's the same word, they sound the same. Um, the the word for destroyed and the word for enslaved sound like the same word. So Haman comes and he asks permission to kill the Jews, but he's using this very ambiguous term which would make the king think that he's only asking to enslave this particular people group. Of course, he doesn't mention that they're Jews, but he, he's, the king would naturally assume that Haman is asking to enslave a certain people group, because he follows up with a with a financial uh, offer as well. He offers the king a substantial amount of money, sixty percent of their of the tax revenue of the whole kingdom for a year, if he could. And the king thinks enslave a particular people group. But really, what Haman is asking for is that he wants to destroy a particular people group. So. Esther picks up on that, and notice she's, she's very careful here because although Haman's the one that, that, that drew this law up, it's the king's name. The king is also responsible for the giving of this law, even though he doesn't know it. He doesn't know what the law is. So he, she's being very careful in framing her argument so that it doesn't look like she's trying to indict the king. She's very very careful in that because she knows that the ultimate um, culprit is, is Haman, so she's masterfully framing her argument to uh, indict Haman. She then communicates in a way to the king, which draws him in in such a way that he will agree with her before he knows the person that he's talking about. Remember in uh, Second Samuel, Can't quite place it. In Second Samuel, where David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then David uh, tries to hide it. He tries to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered, and then tries to do this whole cover-up. And he thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks he's, a, he's effectively covered his sin. And God sends Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to David. And Nathan says to David, there, there's a man, a rich man, He's got everything. He's got all kinds of flocks, all kinds of land, and there's a poor man. He only has one lamb, and this one lamb is very dear to him. It sleeps in his arm. It eats out of his hands. The kids play with it. Sleeps on the bed with the guy. Well, a a, a traveler came, and the rich man wanted to entertain this traveler but didn't want to use one of his own lambs, so he used the lamb of this poor man to feed a friend. And David, of course, is drawn in as the chess piece is. He doesn't realize what's going on here. And he makes an edict before he realizes who he's talking about. And David says, That guy deserves to die. In fact, that guy should repay this poor man four times for his losses. Remember this story? And then Nathan says, y- You're the guy. Behold, thou art the man. This is what Esther's doing here, too. She's setting up the story. She's moving the pieces. The king has been drawn in, sucked into the play so uh, intelligently that he doesn't realize. He gives, he gives the, the uh, decision about what's to be done here before he realizes who is the one who's actually done the wrong. Um, Dugit says... Esther's intricate plan was a necessary part of the process of bringing Haman to justice, a plan that required a combination of subtlety, boldness, and strength to carry it through. So we might uh, we might criticize Esther, because here's this poor woman trying to match wits with some pretty astute chess player guys. But they don't realize, and sometimes we don't either, that she is... Um, a very astute player herself, and she's been moving these pieces very cautiously but very effectively, arranging the pieces according to her strategy, Mm -hmm. and her point is, her objective is, the checkmate of Haman, and that's drawing very near. She is the chess master of this game. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So Haman, again, has not only threatened the queen, I mean, in killing the Jews, it includes her. He's also tricked the king in order to do that. Esther's phraseology here shows this brilliant uh, rhetorical skill. And not surprisingly then, when the king hears that, He is hot with rage because he's been tricked and someone is threatening his queen and he says, who is he? Where is he? Who's dared to do this? And then in perfect timing, Esther drops the hammer. The queen places Haman in check and the very form of her language, this staccato response is like this, like a verbal finger pointing. She says, this wicked Haman. He is the enemy. He is the foe. And immediately we are told terror strikes Haman. And it's a very uh, powerful indictment against him. And and in verse 6, Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. Notice again the interesting phraseology. At the beginning of this verse, it's Esther and Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, king and the queen. But when Haman is terrified, what does it say? There's, there's no more Esther and Ahasuerus. Not, these two are not referred to by their names, but by their titles. Esther is a, a, a force to be reckoned with. He's, it's not Esther that he's squared off with. It's the queen. She's the queen. And Haman is, is terrified and speechless before her. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from his palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So the king, for his part, is so enraged that he, he storms out of the room and he, and he storms out into the palace guard. He is momentarily at a loss to know what to do next, how to proceed with this, right. Think of the, the, how complex this is for the king. His right-hand man, his, 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 his highest, closest advisor, his friend through all of this is a traitor. And his wife, the queen, is being threatened with her life. And he doesn't know how to proceed with all of this. So he's trying to figure out how to sort this all out. And in the meantime, Haman is pleading with the queen for his life. Now, it's a few moments earlier, it's the queen who was pleading for her life. And now here, it's Haman for his life from the queen. Now, notice the poetic justice here. It's, it's exquisite. The man who is so enraged at a Jew for refusing to bow down to him, and so he wants to kill that Jew, take that Jew's life, is now the very same man who's falling down before a Jew, asking that Jew to spare his life. I, I just find that, you know, very poetic. The king walks back into the banquet hall. He sees Haman falling on the couch where Esther is. This is an illegal move in chess. (laughs) Now, honestly, Haman is only begging for his life. He's not stupid enough that he's really trying to sexually assault the queen in her own chambers with the king standing outside there. He's just begging for his life. But what we don't understand here is in the Persian culture, no one may approach the wife or the concubine of the king within seven steps. So Haman obviously is closer than seven steps. He's falling down on the couch. Here's this man who's taken the king's signet ring, who attempted to take the king's robe and attempted to take the king's horse and appears now to be trying to take advantage in some way of the king's wife, the harem protocol would say that if you do that, if you come within seven steps of the the king's wife or concubine, it's the death penalty. There's a particular procedure that has to happen here. If the king leaves the room and he leaves his wife, you leave the room. You do not stay behind in the presence of the queen. What does Haman do? Well, he's caught on the horns of a dilemma. He could, he should leave the room, but if he goes out with the king, the king's torqued at him and trying to figure out what to do to him, and he already understands the king means to do him harm. He doesn't want to go out there. But if he flees, it will look like he's implying guilt, and it will invite pursuit. He doesn't know what else to do. The only thing he can think about doing is falling down before the queen, I'm begging for, uh, for, for mercy. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't have very many options available to him. There's a very limited number of moves that he can take on the board. By the way, this is why I never play chess with Hanson. Because it always ends up with me and checkmate groveling on the floor for mercy. <laughs> Let the, just, just to be warned, okay. Okay, so it's precisely at this moment where he's improprietously begging for his life that the king comes back into the room and now his problem, what do I do with Haman, has been solved. Because now he's going to have Haman uh, executed for violation of harem protocol. Regardless of his intent, you know, like I said, Haman wasn't trying to molest the queen. He was trying to beg for his life, but he he will be condemned to death. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Mordecai on the gallows that he prepared. (laughs) I'm even reading it. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you why I do that. (laughs) I had to confess to Annie a little earlier. Sometimes my brain is not keeping up with my mouth. So I was even reading it and came it up wrong. All right. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that they'd prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. Okay, so Haman has prepared a death of indignity for Mordecai. This extreme humiliation is to be hung on the petard, this 75 foot high pole that could be seen anywhere in the city. The irony is, the guy he wants to impale on this pole and humiliate to the highest level, I realize that's a juxtaposition. The guy he wants to humiliate to the highest level is the same guy who just this day the king has honored as someone who's saved his life and is a friend of the king, a friend and a defender. So Xerxes is probably concluding that the reason that Haman wants Mordecai killed and humiliated is that Haman must have sympathetic tendencies towards the treasonous guys who earlier had tried to assassinate the king. Now it's a little hard for us to come to that conclusion based on the text that we have, but in the Greek text, um, it emphasizes that Haman, the king's closest advisor, will be executed in disgrace for treason not for harem protocol, but for treason. Immediately then they take Haman back to his house. They execute him on the gallows, um, just as the previous traitors had been executed. Again, the irony is so striking here. Here's a man who was seated high above everybody else. He's now hanged high above everyone else. Here's a man who's so obsessed with his own elevation, who is now truly elevated, 75 feet up in the air. Here's a guy who's, who's, uh, who wants to humiliate Mordecai and himself is humiliated. There's a proportional reversal here. Haman is, is hanged on the very gallows that he's prepared for Mordecai. And Mordecai has gotten the very honor that Haman wanted for himself and haman got the gallows that he wanted and for mordecai mordecai got the honor that haman wanted for himself oh how the the mighty have fallen and, and how swiftly all this happened in a day all this happened in a day at the beginning of the day haman was on top of the world he he, he was wealthy he was honored and by the end of the day he's kind of on top of the world again but on top of a pole <laughs> on top of the world he's been impaled on this this in in utter humiliation and disgrace. The day day began um, coming into the palace to seek Mordecai's execution, and it ends with him being led away from the palace to be executed himself. There's such poetic justice here. Haman gets exactly what he deserves in an exact measure that he deserves it. In, In that sense, I guess you could say Haman's downfall here is a manifestation of God's providential work to overturn evil. There's this poetic justice of all history being displayed here. And, of course, the highest example of this reversal, this dynamic reversal, this poetic justice, is what we're celebrating this time of year with the birth of Jesus. Here's, in, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, 151, uh, Ma- Mary is pregnant, and she's been told what's going on, and she breaks out in this song. The, she's magnifying the Lord. In fact, that's what the name we've given to this song. He magnifies the Lord for his gracious treatment of her. She's using various passages from the Old Testament. She's celebrating what we see as redemptive reversal, so the powers of the world are being brought low. The humble are being raised up. Uh, she, she says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Then, of course, we see that in, in Jesus' life, too. You know, so much of Jesus' ministry, he was bringing down the the high ones and bringing up the low low ones. The strong he brought down. He overcomes the strong man by his messianic power. The proud he brings low with his preaching. He pronounces woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. The powerful he brings down by scathing indictments, proclaiming judgment on the Sadducees, the temple hierarchy. And then in contrast, he. He blesses the poor, and the outcast he restores, and the marginalized he helps, and the diseased he cures, and the oppressed are freed, and the crippled are healed, and the the hungry are fed, and the despised are loved. You see, there's this this poetic reversal that's constantly taking place into Jesus' life. You know that this whole thing comes to a beautiful climax at the cross of Christ this poetic reversal. This, this is the ultimate reversal. So here is the strong man, Satan, who orchestrates the execution of God's man, Jesus, much like Haman orchestrates the execution of Mordecai. And Satan feels as he gets Jesus onto the cross that he has finally become victorious over god himself and what appears then to be a rousing victory for satan he celebrates as christ dies on the cross really ends up being the petard on which he himself is hoisted at the cross jesus assumes our sins he takes the blows for evil he enters into our death but in so doing he has exhausted the penalty for sin he triumphs over evil he conquers death. Satan's victory at the cross turns out to be quite, ironically, is ironically a word, ironically. And poetically, a reversal. The very thing that Satan feels is his victory is his ultimate defeat. Satan's defeat there is a a precursor, a, a picture a type looking forward in time when God deals with all the Hamans of the world. With all of the people who think that they have gained victory over God, their their pride will one day be stopped. One day they will be called into account and their cruelty will come to an end and there will be perfect justice. Here's an interesting thought to leave behind. When Haman is executed on his toll, the wrath of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is completely satisfied. But God's wrath is never satisfied against Haman. There will never be a moment for Haman when God's wrath is satisfied because there's no escape in death from God's justice. It just issues in issues in a final permanent situation of God's abiding anger. God's wrath towards individuals is only satisfied when they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Dogat said, Our king's wrath was poured out in full upon his own son on the cross. And if God's fury has been poured out in full upon Christ, now there is none left us. Remember, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have peace with God? In the terrible price that Christ paid be our substitute, he went to the cross, and paid that cost himself and that covering of our sin god accepting the price has been paid he is satisfied now the debt has been paid in full there is no longer wrath from god towards us in our sin we are free not only are we free from god's wrath but we're free to come into god's presence as his dearly loved son and his precious daughters we're welcomed in God's presence for Christ's sake. And no one and nothing can separate us from the love of that king. The king is not going to love us now and then later let us be hung out, hanged out. I think hanged out. Why not? Because his love for us, rests on his character, not ours. Furthermore, remember when Esther comes before the king with her petition, and she begins by saying, if it please the king, if, it, if, it's, if I have found favor in your sight. That's not how we come before the king. We come before the king and we say, If your son Jesus Christ has found favor in your sight, and God says, Of course it has. And you have access to me through Jesus Christ. You come into the presence of God because you have found that kind of favor in his presence. Our destiny is bound up in Christ's destiny. Our reception of love is bound up in Christ's reception of his Father's love. What we have seen here today is a real war played out on the chessboard, but with real lives at stake. Esther masterfully plays her opponent. She keeps her eye always on the endgame, then finally placing Haman in checkmate. But of course, we understand through the, the book of Ruth and through the Esther, the book of Esther that even though God's name is never mentioned, the real master of the board, the unseen hand of God, is revealed. Let's pray. Father, all we can do is stand amazed at your great love and grace and mercy that you've been willing to show us when in reality all of these denigrating words that we come up with for haman are also applied to us we are proud and narcissistic preoccupied with others recognizing our ability and giving us praise we don't deserve anything better than what haman got We deserve to be the object of your eternal judgment and wrath. What an amazing thing, however, that we have been shown such mercy, such grace. Not only have we been pardoned, forgiven of our traitorous acts, you have elevated us to the position of sons and daughters, and you love us as you love your son, Jesus Christ. we stand in Father, I pray that these truths ruminate in our minds and our thoughts these weeks as we are continuing to prepare for Advent, that we would also be remembering that the birth was about the cross. Lord, help us to love each other. Help us to live lives yesterday. Thank you.